What do you do when you're wrong? Maybe it's a, a disagreement with a loved one. What do you do when you're wrong? Maybe you got in a fight with a coworker at work and you said some stuff that you realized you shouldn't have said. And then you go, okay, now what do I do? Some people, maybe not us, but some people just deny, oh, I didn't do anything wrong. If you knew what they did, then, you would re- then you'd know it was okay for me to speak to them that way. It would be okay for me to do that thing. And so we just, some people, when they're wrong, just deny that they did anything. Some people just kind of shift the blame. Like I said, too, well, if you knew what they did, then you would know what I did is not as bad as what they did. Some of us, when we're wrong, we just try to outrun it, right? You, you say something that you shouldn't have said, and then you just, well, if I can get enough time in between me and that, then I'll stop feeling guilty about it. And so we just, some of us, when we're wrong and when we're guilty, we, we just try to outrun it. Just give it time and it'll go away. Or maybe you're the kind that tries to make up for it. I'll buy flowers. I'll do some extra cleaning. I'll do the dishes, which I never do before. But hey, I did something wrong. So we'll, maybe I'll, they'll, just, they'll know I feel sorry because I, I did something instead. What do we do when we're wrong? It's, a, it's an issue that all of us deal with. Some of us, the way, well, okay, I'm wrong, so let me just apologize quickly because I'll feel better and I'll get this. There can be an apology that's right where we go, okay, what I did was wrong, will you forgive me? But there's also the kind of apology where we just try to make ourselves feel better by apologizing really fast. I might be the only person here who's guilty of doing that one. But... All of us end up having to deal with what do we do when we're guilty? And today we're going to be looking at a passage that helps us begin to think through, like, what do we do when we realize before God that we're wrong? Do we just try to outdo it? Do we just try to make up for it with God? Do we say, well, God, if you knew the pressure that I was under, then you'd, God, then you'd know it's okay. I don't normally do that. It was just what happened that week. Today we're going to be looking at a passage that speaks to us when we're tempted to just defend ourselves, make ourselves feel better, or just try to outrun the times that we're wrong and that we're guilty. Turn with me to Mark chapter 14. We've In this series called Certain, where we're walking through the days leading up to Easter, to, we've seen... Jesus' Last Supper with His disciples. We've seen Jesus praying in the garden. We've seen Jesus arrested. And today we're going to look at Jesus' trial before the religious leaders and before the Roman leader. So turn with me to Mark chapter 14. We're going to start in verse 53. They took Jesus to the high priest. And all the chief priests, the elders, and the teachers of the law came together. Peter followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. There he sat with the guards and warmed himself at the fire. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death, but they did not find any. 
Many testified falsely against him, but their test statements did not agree. Then some stood up and gave this false testimony against him. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with human hands, and in three days we'll build another not made with hands. Yet even then, their testimony did not agree. Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, said Jesus, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses, he asked. You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They all condemned him as worthy of death. Then some began to spit at him. They blindfolded him, struck him with their fists, and said, prophesy. And the guards took him and beat him. Let's pray. Father, as we open your word and we look at Jesus' trial, help us to see what you have to say to us in our own guilt. In Jesus' name, amen. So, This story starts with Jesus before what's called the Sanhedrin. Your translation may call it the council. This is a council made up of the priests, the scribes or the the lawyers, the, the experts in God's law. And they... They come together. These are the leaders, the elders of Israel. They come together, and these guys are not always united. These guys are often enemies because some of them compromise and are just like, hey, let's just keep peace with Rome because we get position and we get wealth and we get power. We're okay. Let's just do enough to keep God happy. Let's do enough to keep the Romans happy. And we're going to keep our comfortable leadership position in the land of Israel. There are others that like are longing for the kingdom of God to come. And they think that they can manipulate God. Well, if we just keep the laws of God enough, God will be happy with us. He will give us our kingdom back. We'll throw off the Romans and everything is going to be okay. And so this is uh, this council that's gathered in the middle of the night. We actually don't know a whole lot of details about them at this point because the earliest stuff that's written about them comes after Jesus' death, a number of years after Jesus' death. But this council comes together. Peter's following at a distance. And verse 55, I think, is so interesting. It says the chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin, that's the council, were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death, but they didn't find any. They've already chosen their verdict. We're trying to put Jesus to death, and so let's find a reason to do it. This is like the kind of opposite of the way a court that we would hope to be in. If we're taken to court, we hope that they didn't choose a verdict and then decide, okay, well, what charges can we use? to put him to death. But that's what happens here with Jesus. And even all of the people coming to give false testimony can't agree with each other. The, The one charge that it tells us somebody's made up is, I will destroy this temple made with human hands and in three days we'll build another not made with hands. The reason that's false is because it's really close to something that Jesus said. But he didn't say, if I tear down the temple, he said, you tear down this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. And so they, they're, even in that, they're, they're trying to twist it and they can't get the story straight. And so this accusation that they've brought against Jesus is false. And so the high priest, it's not working. And so instead, he confronts Jesus and asks, says, will you answer? Then the high priest, when he says, are you the Messiah, 
if you, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? The, the Jewish people then and now were not willing to say the name of God. And so Son of the Blessed One was a way of saying, are you the Son of God? And Jesus like raises the stakes and says, not only like, are, am I the Son of God, but I'm the Son of Man, which is a title from the Old Testament. And he's saying, I'm going to come with the glory of God. And so the high priest realizes Jesus is claiming divinity. And so he tears his clothes in this, this act of, this gr- of grief and of you have heard what he has said. And he says, this is blasphemy. This is a good reason for us to put him to death. And so they condemned him. They all condemned him as worthy of death in verse 64. Then some began to spit at him. They blindfolded him, struck him with their fists, and said, prophesy. The reason that they blindfolded him is because there, there were uh, prophecies that said that when the Messiah comes, he's going to be able to judge based on smell. And so they're like making fun of Jesus by blindfolding him, not just, well, let me, but they're, they're heaping shame on Jesus with accusations, false accusations. And yet, like the, the religious leader, the high priest, what if he had just taken a moment to go, Jesus just claimed to be God. What if he's right? But he won't even slow down enough to do that. But tears his clothes, they condemn him as worthy of death. And then they begin shaming him and mocking him as a fake Messiah. And then the guards took him and beating him. Because ultimately, this is the question this story gets us to, is when Jesus is on trial, what charges are going to convict Jesus? And they're convicting Jesus with lies about the things that he said, with blasphemy, because they won't stop to consider that he's, could he actually be God? And then we see verse 66. Well, this is this kind of interlude, this like special, this special part of this story that I think we have got to listen to as well. Verse 66. While Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came by. When she saw Peter warming himself, she looked closely at him. You also were with that Nazarene, Jesus, she said. But he denied it. I don't know or understand what you're talking about, he said, and went out into the entryway. When the servant girl saw him there, she said again to those standing around, this fellow is one of them. Again, he denied it. After a little while, those standing near said to Peter, surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. He began to call down curses, and he swore to them, I don't know this man that you're talking about. Immediately the rooster crowed the second time. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows twice, you will disown me three times. And he broke down and wept. There is this element of eyewitness testimony to this, that Jesus has already predicted that this is what's going to happen. We saw that earlier in chapter 14, that Jesus tells Peter, you're going to deny me. And so here, this little... Jesus is in the middle of his trial. We see this eyewitness testimony that Jesus is right. Jesus is right. Peter does deny Jesus. And it's not when the Roman soldiers come and put his life on the line. It's when a servant girl of the high priest, the high priest can't put anybody to death. And the servant girl of the high priest certainly can't put anybody to death. And yet Peter can't even bear the shame. And he basically curses to say, I don't even know Jesus. And so, there's this contrast between Jesus who's telling the truth while being falsely accused and Peter who's being accused of the truth and he denies. 
And then we get to chapter 15, verses 1 to 15. That's the, the final scene in the trial of Jesus. Because the, the, the Sanhedrin has no power to put somebody to death. The Romans have given them a lot of power, but they don't have the power to put somebody to death. It's only the Romans that can do that. And so the high priest who has condemned him as worthy of death, then they have to come up with another reason to accuse Jesus. Verse 1. Very early in the morning, the chief priests, with the elders, the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin, made their plans. So they bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate. You have said so, Jesus replied. The chief priest accused him of many things. So again, Pilate asked him, aren't you going to answer? See how many things they are accusing you of. But Jesus still made no reply, and Pilate was amazed. Now it was the custom at the festival to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Asked Pilate, knowing it was out of self-interest that the chief priest had handed Jesus over to him. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. What shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews? Pilate asked them. Crucify him, they shouted. Why? What crime has he committed? Asked Pilate, but they shouted all the louder. Crucify him. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Here, Jesus comes before Pilate. The religious leaders who have already made up their mind, but they couldn't get their stories straight. They couldn't finally find something to accuse Jesus of. Accuse him of many things. Trying to find something that's going to stick before Pilate before Rome, before Pilate. So, they come here in the morning. Jesus is before Pilate. And Jesus won't even answer the accusations that they are delivering to Pilate for him. Jesus is silent. The reason that that is so important that Jesus is silent is because in a courtroom, for Jesus to say nothing means he's consenting to everything that they're charging him with. You go, well, if you don't say anything, in, in our court of law, you're like, if you plead, I think it's plead the fifth, like, I, I don't, I'm not going to incriminate myself, so I'm not going to speak, and it's not an admission of guilt, but here before Pilate, Pilate's like, are you not going to answer? If you, if you don't answer, then you're basically consenting to everything that they are accusing you of. And so verse 3 is so important, the chief priests accused him of many things, because when Jesus makes no reply, he's consenting to die for all the stuff they're accusing him of. But Pilate's like, but I don't think you're guilty of these things. And so Pilate tries to find an out, and then there's Barabbas is here. Barabbas shows up in every one of the Gospels. There, the Gospels use different stories, as, they, as, you, as you probably know. John is extremely different than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They tell lots of different things, selecting what's going to help them make their point. But Barabbas is important to all the Gospels. And Barabbas... Is a, he's an insurrectionist who does not want Rome in Israel. There were different groups. One of the groups that would, uh, that would 
uh, be working to drive out the Romans. They were known for the, these curved sores that they would put inside their sleeve because they could go into a crowd and they could knife the Romans while nobody can look, when nobody can see what's going on, put the sword back into their sleeve and slide back out. And that was their way of creating havoc. And like that, this, we don't know if Barabbas was part of that group or if he was one of the other groups, but he had committed murder in an uprising and the crowd liked him because he was going to throw off the Romans. He was going to deliver us. So there's a crowd there, and the chief priests use Barabbas and use the crowd's love for him to try and put Jesus to death. And so Pilate gives in. Jesus, given the chance to deny all of the charges, instead just consents to die for all of the charges that they're bringing to, uh, against Jesus. And then Barabbas, or Pilate uses Barabbas and lets him go free and crucifies Jesus in his place. And what we see here in this story where the chief priests and Pilate and everybody acknowledges that Jesus is innocent, what we find here is Jesus who is tried but innocent. He's shamed but innocent. He's condemned but innocent. He's delivered but innocent. And so this story speaks to those of us who live in a world where we constantly deal with guilt. It could be guilt from the past, like a long time ago, something that happened 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, 50 years ago. It could be something that happened last week who are constantly dealing with how do I deal with this guilt? What do I do with this? What we find in the trial of Jesus is Jesus is tried and shamed and condemned and delivered to death, though innocent, so we can go free. So go free. The trial of Jesus, where Jesus, the innocent one, consents to die in our place, calls to us and says, stop trying so hard and go free. Stop trying so hard and go free. What I want to show you here is four characters in this story and what they teach us. The pilot and the religious leaders, I think, speak to us and say, will you slow down and consider who Jesus really is? Will you slow down and consider who Jesus really is? You see, the leader's problem is their mind is already made up about Jesus. This is who Jesus is. This is what we want to do. And so their minds are made up, and they won't slow down and go, you know what? What if Jesus really is God? And this isn't blasphemy. Like chief priests and Sanhedrin, guys, slow down. What if Jesus really is God? Or like Pilate, Pilate, slow down. What if Jesus really is innocent of all of these charges and is not trying to overthrow Rome? Slow down and consider who Jesus really is. I think in our culture, there's a couple different kinds of people that need to slow down and consider who Jesus really is. Oftentimes, when people find out I'm a pastor, it's a really easy end to a, a spiritual conversation if it's not too weird. Like, it's a pastor. I'm a pastor. Like, and so there's kind of this expectation that I will say something. But what I often say is something along the lines, so are you a spiritual person? Not are you a religious person, because almost everybody says, no, I'm not religious, but it gives people a chance to kind of go, oh, okay, the temperature comes down, it's not so weird that this is a pastor, and so I'm like, so tell me, what is, like, you're a spiritual person, what is it? And I often hear something like, I heard a guy, I guess it was this last fall, end of the summer, he was like, I like Jesus, Jesus is cool, like, but he had this box for Jesus to fit into. I like Jesus. Jesus is cool. And 
to that, we have to say, like Pilate and the religious leaders, slow down. What if Jesus isn't just cool and isn't just about forgiving your enemies and turning the other cheek? What if Jesus isn't just about feeding 5,000 people? What if he's the God of the universe who deserves the all of the worship and glory that we can give him? But the other group I think that needs to slow down is people that are religious but still have this box for Jesus to fit into. Like, we're okay with him forgiving me, but we're not okay with turning the other cheek. We're not okay with him who, he says, blessed are the poor. No, we're not okay with the Jesus who says, whatever you do to the least of these, you do unto me. And so we, even in our culture, people who call themselves religious or spiritual, like, can have this box for Jesus where Jesus isn't the Lord who can demand of us. And so all of us, I think, along with Pilate and the religious leader, are called to slow down and consider who Jesus really is. Romans chapter 1, verse 21. Talks to people like that, who, for although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Who, it calls to us to slow down and say, God, may my heart not be darkened towards the real Jesus. May I actually listen to Him as He is. The second character in this story that I think calls to us is Jesus. Here in this story, Jesus is tried, but he's innocent. The Jewish leaders, they know they can't find anything that's going to stick. And so Jesus is innocent. We find a Jesus who is blindfolded and mocked and beaten and spit on. This is a Jesus who is ashamed, who knows what it's like to be ashamed to be made fun of, to be driven out, to not belong. What we have is a Jesus who is condemned, but he's innocent. And who is delivered over to the Romans. And then by the Romans, delivered to the soldiers. Jesus is innocent and tried, shamed, condemned, and delivered. So you don't have to be. And so, if you, like me, come here with memories of the past that creep in and make us go, do I need to apologize? Should I go to that person? Is there some way I can undo this? No, Jesus was tried, shamed, condemned, and delivered for you so you don't have to be. So trade with Jesus. Trade with Jesus. Everything in the Bible flows towards this or from this. Every command is headed towards this moment where we go, God, I have not kept your word. And then Jesus is tried, shamed, condemned, and delivered over for us and for our disobedience. Every promise comes from the fact that God looks at Jesus and sees all, can see all of our sin. And so all of his, nothing is going to stand in the way of his promises in our lives. Everything in the Bible leads to this moment and says, stop defending yourself and trade with Jesus. And trade with Jesus. Stop walking through the Christian life thinking that Christianity is about making you feel more guilty, but instead reminding you of the glory of the God of the universe who put all of your sin on His Son and His Son consented to that accusation and said, I will die for it. N.T. Wright in his book, Simply Jesus, makes this point that basically the entire Gospels has people accusing Jesus. They're accusing Jesus of working with Satan and they're accusing Jesus of trying to uh, work with the Romans and he, they're trying to accuse Jesus of breaking God's law on the Sabbath and they're accusing Jesus of all of these things and here in this moment, Jesus says, bring all of the accusations. Let them come right here and I will consent and die in their place. John Newton, the famous 
He was a preacher. Before that, he had been a slave trader. Wrote the, uh, he, he once said, this is faith, a renouncing of everything that we are apt to call our own and relying wholly upon the blood, righteousness, and intercession of Jesus. Jesus here in this trial was innocent, tried, shamed, condemned, and delivered so we can trade everything that we have with him. And so that we can walk through our lives not going, how many people do I need to apologize for? How do I undo so much? But instead we look at the cross and we see Jesus took it all. And so are you today working to please God or are you relying on Jesus? Are you working to please God, trying to go, God, well, if I can just undo what I once thought, said, did, didn't do, Stop defending yourself. Trade with Jesus. Instead of walking through life thinking I'm better than this person, at least I'm not like them, trade with Jesus. Trade with him. If you're walking through life going, I just need to get this under control. I just need to get rid of this pet sin. I just need to be free from the temptation that I keep going back to. Stop with that and trade with Jesus. Instead of beating yourself up, trade with Jesus. The third character in this story is Peter. Peter, this is kind of like a little mini story in the middle of this. And I think Peter tells us, deserters, you're still welcome. Failures, you're still welcome. You see, like in some ways, Peter doesn't matter. He's just one of the disciples. He's just, he's around and he's rejecting Jesus. The story does not advance with Peter, except earlier in Mark chapter 14, Jesus has, before he tells Peter that you're going to deny me, he says, Peter, I'm going to go before you into Galilee. Before Jesus tells Peter, your failure is coming up. Instead, Jesus already says, Peter, I have plans for you. I think that, matter, that order matters so much because so many people here today, I think, need to be reminded, deserters, failures, you're still welcome. God's still got plans for you. Some of you need to hear that because your greatest failure is still in the future and you're going to need to be reminded, God still has plans for me. Peter breaks his promise to Jesus. Peter is weak. Peter is a failure. And yet, but Jesus has already said, I'm going in front of you. I still have plans for you. I still have plans for you, Peter. And so you need to hear, Jesus still has plans for you. He still wants you. Christianity is not a religion for those who have it together and who never fall down and who never fail and who never desert and who never turn their backs. Christianity is a story for deserters that says, come close, you're still welcome. I have a friend who told me about uh, a family friend of his whose their, their daughter, when she grew up, became an adult, like left the faith, abandoned her family, wanted nothing to do with her family, went and lived a, a lifestyle like we see in the story of the prodigal son. She rejected her family. She rejected her family's faith. She wanted nothing to do with Jesus. And so she went and lived her own life filled with sin. And later when she, a few years later, she came home and said, Mom and Dad, I was wrong. I was wrong. And so her dad goes, what should I do? And so her dad literally went and found the nicest steakhouse around, invited all of his friends, and said, I will pay for dinner. We're going to have the biggest party in the nicest steakhouse I can find. And in the middle of the party, stood up and gave her his ring and said, welcome home. That is the story of the gospel. That's what we see in Peter. Jesus has got plans for Peter. 
The book of Acts is the church is built on the back of Peter's witness. And so when we see Peter deserting Jesus, we don't just see somebody who should have done better. We see a promise for you and I that no matter how far we go, we're still welcome to come home. And so some of you today need, to, need the dominant story of your life to be, I'm still welcome. I'm still welcome. Imagine what changes when that's the story that you tell yourself. I'm forgiven. And I'm at peace. And I'm still coming home. And there's still a place for me to come back to. Jesus isn't mad at me. He knew all along. And he said, come home. Imagine the kind of changes that might happen in your life when you're not trying to outrun and you're not trying to outdo and you're not having to deny. You can just rest and hear, come home. You're welcome. The fourth character, the last character in this passage, kind of has become my favorite this week, which you know I say favorite all the time about everything. But Barabbas is my new favorite. Barabbas shows up in every story of of Jesus' trial. And I think there's a reason for that. Because in some ways, who cares about Barabbas? He doesn't show up anywhere else. We don't know anything else about him in in the letters. I've never seen his name show up anywhere else. But he hated Rome and was willing to commit murder to throw off Rome. But Barabbas matters. Barabbas matters because he's the one who's guilty of what Jesus dies for. Right? Pilate puts Jesus to death as an insurrectionist, as a rebel against Rome. And we know that Jesus is innocent of that. And so Barabbas matters because Barabbas is dead certain guilty. Barabbas is guilty. And so when Barabbas goes free, we hear the heart of the gospel. We hear the heart of the gospel. Jesus dies for the thing that Barabbas is guilty of. That is the gospel. The heartbeat of Christianity is that the guilty go free. That's it. The guilty go free in Christ. Jesus takes the punishment for what Barabbas does. That's why it shows up in every one of the Gospels. They knew they couldn't leave it out. It's because Barabbas is a picture of you and I when we trust in Christ. Barabbas is standing there going, I am dead certain guilty of murder, and they're about to kill him and let me go. I I did this, and yet they're going to kill him. And that is why it is so important in the Gospels that you and I hear that the Gospel means the guilty go free because Jesus takes our punishment. J.D. Greer tells a story. It's a made-up story of a Viking king who is incredibly wise and the people love him and he's beloved and everything. And one day somebody starts stealing from this king. and Everybody loves him and he's super wise and he says, hey, like I love my subjects, I love the people. But you can't be stealing from the treasury. And so, but if this continues, I'm going to have to put to death whoever I find that's killed, or I'm sorry, whoever has uh, stolen from the treasury. And it doesn't stop until one day they find that it was actually his mother that was the one that was stealing. And the people are left going, What's he going to do? He's always just. He always does the right thing. He never does the wrong thing. And yet he said he's going to put to death whoever steals from the treasury. And yet is his mom. What's he going to do? And so the day comes and they tie his mother up because they're going to whip her. 
to kill her because that was how they used, that's the method that they used. And so everybody's left going, he's, okay, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? What's going to happen? This is the last moment. And at the last moment, he takes his cloak off and he goes and he wraps his mother in a hug and he says, go ahead and whip her. And the executioner is like, what, wait, what? Like, like, but you're standing here and he says, go ahead and whip her. Go ahead and whip her while holding her in a hug. And J.D. Greer tells the story, and I think it illustrates well what happens with Barabbas here, that Jesus is wrapping Barabbas in a hug and saying, kill him right here, right through me. That is the picture of the gospel. Satan does not want you to believe this. He doesn't want the dominant story of your life to be, Barabbas, go free. He doesn't want the dominant story of your life to be, you're guilty, but you can go free. Jesus paid it all. He does not want you to live with that reality. And so he tries to trick you and tell you, well, if you apologize enough, or if you do enough good things, or if there's enough time in between the last time you sinned, and Jesus is just like, go free, go free. I died for these. So you and I are called here today to the heart of Christianity to look on Barabbas and to see ourselves. Maybe you're here today and for the first time you realize your guilt before God of not loving him with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength and not loving your neighbor as yourself. And you say, who can save me? This story calls to you today and says, Jesus can. Come and trade with Jesus. Come and trade with Jesus. The picture of the Bible, or the the way the Bible tells this story is that all of us, created by God, living in his world, are held responsible to love God and to represent him to the world. But Adam and Eve and you and I have said, no, we will not live your way. We will not do what you have called us to do. We want our own kingdoms. We want our own way. We, like Barabbas, are rebels, and we're willing to do whatever it takes to get what we want. The Bible calls that sin and says the the wages of sin is death. Physical death in this life and eternal death in hell forever. But instead of leaving us there, Jesus comes to you and I, just like he did to Barabbas, and he dies, the innocent for the guilty, so that he can bring us to God. Romans 4.25 says to bring us to God. And so today, if you're here, And you go, I want to trade with Jesus. Come and grab me at the end of the service. You don't need to to talk to me specifically, but I want to help you understand for sure what it means to repent of your sin and trust in God so you can know you're going free. If that's you, come and grab me at the end of the service. And so this passage calls all of us, stop trying so hard and go free. Stop trying so hard and go free. Imagine what happens if the dominant story of your life is I'm free. I'm free. There's no punishment left. There's no guilty verdict ahead. That Jesus consented to all charges on my behalf. And so I'm free and I don't have to carry the weight of this guilt, this weight of trying so hard. Imagine what happens in the life of a church when we become, when our identity for ourselves And our identity in our community and in our world is that we are guilty people who walk free. We become a good news kind of church that I think smells like good news to people. We don't carry ourselves with pride. Hey, we're guilty, just like everybody else. And yet Jesus has set us free. We become a good news and welcoming kind of church, a free kind of church. Let's pray.
Father, we thank You for the fact that You consented to all charges on our behalf. We thank You that the picture You want us to carry is that we are Barabbas, guilty and yet free. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.